Peter, over here, brother. Look at this table filled with young men who are waiting for you to... What's your name again? Peter. Thank you. <laughs> Didn't, I missed that one. I should have asked him first, what's his name? That's what's his name. Well, for those of you who are looking on CD, uh, nothing has happened to Evan. There has not been a frightful degeneration. This is Peter Davidson. Evan's on vacation. So this is, you turned in this morning, you turn on the machine, you see the face and say, what has gone on in this church? Well, this is it. I think all of us would agree that we've been richly blessed by Evan's presentation of Islam. And, you know, he's used a book by Nabil Qureshi, where it's, and I don't have the title right in here. He sent me the title. I think it's Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. And so what we're dealing with here specifically are the doctrinal and historical and cultural issues of Islam. And it should be patently obvious why we're doing that. If anyone is not understanding of why Islam, then what rock have you been sitting under? I even have seen enough of it. And I've been accused by being under a rock a whole lot of times. And so Evan has traced out the history of Islam in a very tenuous, very, you know, cryptic way. Obviously, in three weeks, you can't go into details very much. He's traced out some of the cultural issues and he's traced out a little bit of the theological issues. And the primary doctrinal issue with Islam is this. And this is the primary doctrinal issue with every other religious system. Who is Jesus? That's the central question that needs to be answered in any and every religious discussion between a believer and a non-believer or a believer in other religions. All of the other material, all of the other discussions, all of the other activities, all of the other whatevers are purely very lowly secondary to this primary, fundamental, central issue of who is this one who is called Jesus Christ. And so that's the issue this morning that we'll talk about and just very narrowly discuss something of Koresh's investigation of Jesus as it applied to the Quran's teaching and the biblical teaching. Because what we have in the Quran, if we have been listening carefully, is this. This is not a dialogue. The Quran is a dictated piece of information. It is a one-sided presentation by Allah, and it is all of his statements and commands. This is what you do. This is who I am. This is what you don't do. This is where you go. This is where you don't go. This is how you live. Everything goes from Allah to Muhammad who dictates this, 
I mean, it's dictated to uh, uh, Muhammad, and he dictates it to other scribes, and then they write this down. You remember all of that. And so what we have in the Quran is a series of dogmatic statements that say, don't believe that, believe this. This isn't true, this is. Jesus is this way and not that way. And so when it comes to proof, where's the proof in the Quran? You see, because the Quran issues no proof. And so when it comes to the Bible, however, we have a radically different presentation because we not only have a dialogue, I'm sorry, a, a dictation, if you would, a revelation from God, but then you have the response of man to God, and so you have a dialogue here, and you have a history. And so the basic issue or the difference, one of the basic differences between the Bible and the Quran is this. The Quran is one-sided from God, little God, Allah, to us, where the Bible is a multifaceted presentation of the truth about God, the truth that comes from God, the truth that is given to man, the truth that is developed in man, and the truth that is demonstrated historically through activities and cultures and events which prove that the God of the Bible is who he says he is, and the Quran is obviously completely lacking in anything like that. So this morning, just want to go through a few things about this. I want to do it a little differently. Just don't want to lecture, here it is, here it is, here it is. Because it's pretty easy. We could give a list of all the biblical uh, references to Jesus' deity and, and et cetera, et cetera. We did a teaching. I did a teaching on that several years ago. And it's like pages and pages long of what the Bible has to say. But I think this morning I want to have a little more of a dialogue, maybe not an actual dialogue at the tables because we don't have that kind of time. But would you think with me and would you respond to what we're going to say and propose as if you were personally sitting down with a Muslim and this was the conversation just between you and this Muslim? just between you and this Muslim. And so if you're asked questions or statements are being made, the question is, how would we defend the truth of the Bible in reference to the accusations and statements of the Quran? What are you going to say? What are you going to do? So let's just see how that works out. Father, thank you so much. Father, when we realize that every person in this room, had you allowed it, we all could be swallowed up by a false religion. And Father, every one of us in this room, had you allowed it and not saved us by your Spirit, Father, had you walked past us, Father, we today would be worshiping in darkness and be under your condemnation forever. So, Father, cause us to remember we are not here today gloating. 
or because we know more or are better than others, we are the ones on whom you have set your love before the foundation of the world. And Father, there's no reason at all for this except you have chosen us. So Father, we begin this morning and we begin and hopefully end and continue with a huge, a huge amount of humility, <clears throat> of gratefulness to have been loved by you, saved by that love, maintained all the way to the end and forevermore by your love. And Father, would you cause the very love of God which has led us to repentance to be that love which is exuding from us and experienced by others, whether they be Muslims or Hindus or just they call themselves atheists or whatever they are. Father, would you cause us to be vessels of that goodness and mercy that saved us? In Jesus' name, amen. You remember, oh, well, you don't remember. You, did any of you read the book? And, and I wouldn't have expected too many to have read it. A couple hands went up. Was that Sam? Is that you back there? I can't see you very well. And so um, in Koresh's book, it's kind of a history of who he is and his travels and his investigation of Christianity as compared to Islam, obviously. And so when he's in the 10th grade, a Christian girl asks him, do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? And his answer is, well, yes. Yes. Now, when he says that, he's Muslim. Is he telling the truth? Yes. And no. Right? From his own perspective, he knows Jesus. He knows what he's been taught about Jesus. So his answer is what? Yes. From the biblical perspective of really knowing who Jesus is in reality, the answer is no. So notice what the girl's reply is. Because what we want to make sure is that when someone, we ask that and someone answers, and we're thinking, no, no, you don't know Jesus. And, and we're right about that. You know, like, mm -mm. let's be careful how we respond to that answer. Because the next question the Holy Spirit is going to use to do what? Begin an investigative process in him. A causing him to begin to look in himself and in his religious system to find out. Who is Jesus? Maybe I don't know him that well. So his answer is yes. And so what does she say? She says, what do you think about him? Isn't that a great question? No challenge. Well, what about this? What about that? What do you think about him? And so let me do this for us. And don't take the time this morning. But someone asks you, do you know Jesus? Well, yes, I've been a Christian all my life. I mean, I'm, okay, fine, fine. What do you know about him? What do you know about him? What would you say? What do you personally know about this one whom we worship as a son of God, the king of glory? What do you know about him? What do I know about him? 
what do I know about him biblically, theologically, historically, but maybe most importantly, at least as important as the others put together to make a whole, what do I know about him personally, personally? So what do you know about him? So this precipitates the following conversation, and I've taken the conversation, kind of cut it, cut and paste and so on. He says, well, I'm Muslim, right? Muslims believe that Jesus was sinless and born of the Virgin Mary. He cleansed the lepers and gave sight to the blind, raised people from the dead. Jesus is the Messiah, the Word of God. Hey, this guy must be saved. Very important for you to see that when a person can answer, giving these kinds of answers doesn't necessarily mean they are saved because they are coming from a different category of meaning of words, okay? So, oh, that, that's a brother. It's a brother. It may not be a brother. Betsy was stunned. I must have got off script because she did not know where to go from there, so I proceeded for her. But Jesus was not God. He was just a man. I had drawn the battle lines for her and waited to see how uh, how to see we, she went to war. We, boy, this, I should have made this a bigger print. No wonder I make my other print. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that's very important to us because this is Betsy's answers. We believe Jesus is the Son of God, and that's very important to us because He was the Son of God. He had no sin and was able to take our sins upon Himself. Great, good answer. I had many problems with that statement, he says. But I had already drawn the battle line, so I stuck with the issue of Jesus' deity. I decided to take a controversial approach. Well, Betsy, I don't think the Bible, I don't think the Bible we have today is the Word of God. You see, remember that? It's come through, it's been polluted. It's been changed too many times throughout history. Now, we're not going to go into that because I think Evan has already done a good job. For now, let's just say I think so. So let, let me, let's just say I believe the Bible is the Bible. Where does Jesus say, I'm God? You should know this. Every one of us should be able to answer that question. Where does the Bible say, having Jesus said, I am God? I'm too slow on this, right? Heaven is much better than I am. Critical, critical. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, so I'm going to say raise your hands, but in your heart, raise your hands. How many of you could give me a definitive scripture where Jesus claims to be God himself? Just, you see? If you don't know, today hopefully should be very significantly, fundamentally helpful for you. Because if you don't know, the devil is going to give you many opportunities to look like you don't know your Bible and fumble around. And even if you're not careful to begin to shake your foundation in a detrimental way, at least from his purpose, but God, of course, will be able to use it and will use it for his purpose. Betsy thought for a moment she didn't seem too troubled, but it was clear to me she, shouldn't, she couldn't remembering, remember him saying it. After an uncomfortable moment she pa that passed, when she seemed totally confident with, uh, with, he said, in John's gospel, Jesus says, I and the Father am one. Remember that? Okay. This was the one I expected to go to, for I was already ready. See, they're ready for us. Yeah, but also in John, Jesus prays for his disciples to be one, just as he is one with the Father. Remember John 17. 
So he clarifies exactly what he means by one. He means unified in spirit and will. If he meant one as in one being, would he be praying for his disciples to be one in the same way? You see, one as Godness is one. He's not praying for his disciples to all become one being, is he? And that's a good point, she said. A good point. I was in the process of dismantling her worldview and she was being, un- she was being congenial. Did this girl ever get agitated? Well, I can't think of it right now, but I'm sure it's there. I'll look it up and get back with you. I love for you too, Betsy, but you won't find anything Jesus ever said that he was God. He made the opposite very clear to us. He felt the pangs of hunger, thirst, loneliness, temptation. He cried out and he bled. He didn't call himself the Son of God. He called himself the Son of Man. You see, the Son of Man, that proves I'm not God, I'm man. He was very obviously man. So what do you say? What do you say? So let's go through some of this and see where we wind up. How would you have answered these questions? You see, important for us today is not just to hear me or Evan or anybody give you, here, here are the answers. The important primary question for us today is, first of all, let's recognize if we don't know the answers, we need to know them. And if we do know the answers, let's be encouraged by that. All right? Because just giving off a bunch of answers necessarily doesn't do anything. What causes education to occur in us is the realization that I need to be taught something to receive information because I don't have it and I need it. So I'm hoping this morning that if this is the case in many of us, I don't know what I would say. Hopefully this morning in some way this will help us move forward and learn a little better. So Koreshi began to go through a series of investigation and he his friend David, whom he mentions in there, he's his best friend. He's known him since like the seventh grade. And, you know, they're moving along and they begin to have conversations as they get older and they enter the college area and so on. So David picks up the challenge that Qureshi talks about. Let's investigate who Jesus is in the Bible. Okay? I don't believe Jesus died on the cross. Quran says Jesus did not die on the cross. <clears throat> well, what do you say to that? What do you say? Jesus didn't die on the cross. Well, if there is a litmus test, litmus test between Islam and Christianity, this is what Qureshi tells David. I think it's the issue of whether Jesus died on the cross. Now, we may be surprised, you see, because there are many people who don't believe it, flat out don't believe it. The Quran strongly denies the death of Jesus. Qureshi's father used, and he was in the conversation, John 19, 34 as his text to show that Jesus' heart was still beating when the spear pierced his side. Remember when the Roman soldier came up and pierced the side of Jesus? What? What does it say? Water and blood came out. You see, the heart was still beating, otherwise water and blood could not gush out. That's what he's using as evidence that Jesus really didn't die. He swooned. He passed out. What do you say to that? How do you handle that? Well, the answer comes from the same passage. See, because John in that passage says Jesus dies. 
And then the Roman soldier do what? Does what? They pierce his side. Now, I am no biologist, and perhaps some of you are, but apparently what has happened here, when the spear hit the, what do you call the sac around the heart, which has, you know, liquid whatever, pericardium, somebody said that word? Okay. The blood and the water came out, which indicated that this man is dead. He's dead. There was a separation here. Again, I don't know the biology of it. I've heard this many times in the past, and I don't get the biology. I don't understand why, but that happened. Now, the water was a fluid that surrounded the heart and flowed with the blood because the heart stopped beating. But also, there was something else. Why do we know Jesus died? Because, you see, the art of crucifixion, and I say the art of crucifixion, because to the Romans, this was an art of punishment where the person would suffer the greatest agony and would be able to and would die. Let me get my thoughts together. Would suffer the greatest agony. And the proof of the death was in the breaking of the legs. And what do we mean? When a person was put on the cross, remember the nails were put right under the wrist there, nailed through the wrist, nailed into the feet, and then the person would hang on the cross. Now, hanging on the cross was such excruciating pain that the person had to push himself up on the nails of the feet, you see, to relieve the pain, but also to do something else. Because as the person hung on the cross and the whole body weight, 170, 80 pounds, whatever it is, froze the diaphragm muscles where the person could not exhale. He could inhale, but couldn't get it out. And so, in order to prevent the person from suffocating, he had to push himself up again. And down he can't stand it anymore. And down he goes again. And up he goes again. And hours upon hours of this excruciating agony of fighting the pain of the nails in the feet and the nails in the hands in order to breathe. And also with Jesus, remember what was he, what happened to him in the, uh, with the, uh, the guards? They scourged him. Remember that? They beat him. Now, without going into details, this ripped his body apart. So on this wooden cross, we have this man not only inhaling and exhaling with the greatest of difficulty, but as he's going up and down on the cross, the back that has been lacerated and literally his skin, his flesh is hanging. The muscles are exposed. I mean, this is a terrible thing. Can you imagine the splinters and all the agony that he was experiencing going up and down on the cross, rubbing his backside against the cross? Horrible, horrible agony which was the least of the agony because he was at the same time bearing the wrath of God for our sin. And so the soldiers came to Jesus. And he is hanging there. And so to make sure, they put the spear in his side. But what about the other two men? They had not died yet, did they? 
So do you remember what happened? They broke their legs. So they couldn't anymore what? Push up. And as a result, they suffocated. But you see, the Romans who were extremely good about this did not do that to Jesus. Why? He died. He died. You see, what about the testimony of Joseph of Arimathea, a very prominent Jewish leader who takes the body of Jesus and buries him in the tomb that he had? So the biblical evidence is very clear. And the secular evidence, which again, we didn't even go into, is very clear. Jesus died. So Koreshi has to at least understand, I see, the Bible does teach he died. History does teach that. Because you have to remember, he hasn't read too much of the biblical reference. What about the resurrection? Once the truth about Jesus' death seemed to be settled. Now remember, are you understanding, does the Bible teach Jesus died? Well, it does there, and of course it says he died in other places. But the proof is, again, in what the Romans did and how the Romans inflicted this punishment and how they determined someone was dead. And so, once the truth about his death seemed to be settled, Koreshi questions the claim of the empty tomb. Okay, he died. He died. But what about the empty tomb? Was the tomb empty? I don't believe it was empty. Okay, how would we answer? If Jesus' body remained in the tomb, what? What is the first evidence that Jesus was not the, the tomb was empty. What's the first obviously secular reason for this, uh, uh, proof of this? If Jesus' body was remaining in the tomb, the tomb was not empty. Who would have taken advantage of this? Who said it? Somebody said it. Somebody said the Jews. The Jews. What was their big concern? He said he would rise again. He said he's going to get up. So put a whole bunch of Roman soldiers over there, shut this tomb, you know, with that huge rock, and guard this thing. Remember? If people begin to say, he's alive. If the tomb was not empty, what would the Roman, what would the Jewish officials and even the Roman soldiers have done? They would have taken the body out and paraded the dead body of Jesus through the streets of Jerusalem. They would have paraded it around. Do you think a man who was just swooned and is beaten half to death and has suffered on a cross and in a tomb with a big rock in front of it, how does he get out of that? Especially with soldiers guarding it. It doesn't happen. Well, his disciples, are you kidding? These guys were cowering in the corner. And it was the women who had the courage. And they didn't go back until it was after Sabbath, remember, because it was the Sabbath preparation for the Passover. So they religiously can't go back. But when they do go back, what is their discussion going back? Who is going to do what? Who's going to move the stone? Now, I know we have a bunch of strong ladies here and there and yonder, but, you know, ain't moving a stone. So Jesus actually came out of the... Uh, 
the tomb is not empty is what I'm getting at. Well, what about the body was stolen? Well, if the body was stolen, remember, the official said, look, do this and that, and then so on, the body's not there, here's some money. Tell them they stole the body. Okay, the body's stolen. Well, what do you do with a stolen body? The body's stolen, you go somewhere else, and you give Jesus a real good burial. And then you go around saying, he's alive, he's alive, he's alive. Now, what causes people to be transformed the way we see these men and women transformed by just burying a dead man. But, okay, he's alive. And so years later, everybody's believing he's alive. Based on what? Well, we're just saying he's alive. Oh, he's alive. Okay, I'll believe that. And then the persecutions begin. And so they take you out of your house, John, and they tie you to a wall. And now you are the target of Roman spear throwers because you say he's alive. And you know he's not alive because you know where they buried him, you see. We know where they buried him. How long is it going to take you to say what? Come on. How many spear throwers? <laughs> you see, there's, there's a, that's what you get with a Ph.D., student. Okay, John, now, you know he's alive. You've been saying he isn't alive, and I'm going to pin you to the wall because you say he's alive. Ready? I have no reason to lie. I will just tell you. So tell me what, John? That he, he, he's dead. His body is buried in this earth. And so you would tell me that, so I'm going to spear throw you when you know he's not dead. So what are you going to say? Did you did y'all kill him? I mean, did he, did y'all bury him? Did you bury him? Yes. You did where? Over uh, on the and, other side. And and so you're going to let me throw a spear in you on based on that testimony? Do you understand what we're talking about? No, you don't. <laughs> Does everybody understand what we're doing here? Yeah. Should I throw it at him? How many say yay? Wow. Let me let. let you see, if you knew that he was dead, I'm sorry, he was alive, and that's, but he's not alive, he was dead, what would you do? You would tell me what, where you buried him, wouldn't you? Or would you let me throw spears at you? I would say whatever to get you to not throw the spears. That's right, and so I want the truth. Did you bury him? Sure. <laughs> what grades do you make in school? It's physics, I'm telling you. The man's mind is in physics. You see, had they pretended they buried Jesus, what would have happened when the torture started? I didn't bury him. We didn't bury him. We made it up. He's alive, you see. He is alive. What caused the transformation in these men? What caused it? He swooned and Jesus came that night. <gasps> I'm alive. Okay, okay. That caused transformation? No. See, what caused transformation is that he's alive. What so dramatically transformed the disciples after the death of Jesus was not that they pretended he was alive and they buried him, 
not that he swooned and he kind of got up again, beaten half to death, 90% dead, 10% alive, came in. That didn't do much. That doesn't start a radical transformation. What transformed them was they saw this man alive again, fully man again, with them, speaking with them, sitting with them, talking to them, eating with them, with them. That was a transforming activity. He was alive, Mark 16, 11 to 14. And when they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, remember Martha had seen him, they did not believe it. You see, the women came back. He's alive. He's alive. Oh, come on. You are delusional. You just, it's, it's a, been a bad few days. He's not alive. They didn't believe it. So what happened? Thomas didn't believe it. You see, this was a ridiculous theological thing. Nobody dies and comes back from the grave this way. Nobody. But Jesus was alive. And so what transformed these people were not just statements that he's alive, but that Jesus physically stood before them and revealed himself to them. Remember in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is talking about the resurrection. And he says, look, Jesus appeared to these 12. He appeared to these. He appeared to 500 of the brethren right over there at one time. He even appeared to me, appeared to James. He said, this is a fact. And you see what is happening here when these documents are being written and disseminated throughout the world in that time frame. When these statements were being made, there were other people who knew about them and could have said, he's not alive. We did this. He didn't happen. But there is nothing in the same period of time. I better repeat that. There is nothing in the same period of time. The primary source of, an, of uh, information, the primary, not the secondary, in the same time. There is no proof of any written document that in any way denies this. It's not there. Why aren't there other proofs? Why aren't there other letters? Why aren't there whatever? Oh, you get some of these Gnostic things that, you know, are so goofy in themselves. Why? Why isn't there contrary information? Why? He's alive. It did happen. Well, what about Jesus' divinity? Did Jesus actually claim to be divine? Did he claim to be divine? Did he? Do you think he did? Okay. Then where did he say, pretty specifically, I am equal with God? You remember during the, and someone may ask you this, and Koreshi wants to know, and he doesn't believe the Bible teaches it. You remember during the trial of Jesus, and he's with the Sanhedrin, and the, what does the high priest say in Mark 14? He says this, I adjure you by the blessed. What does that mean? The blessed is a term for God Almighty himself. I adjure you by the blessed. In other words, I'm calling you to give me the right answer and the truth. In the name of God himself, I'm calling you to do that. 
Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? What has Jesus said? I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of glory. And what does the priest do? They tear their garments. But you see, Qureshi says that the Quran teaches that the Son of Man, which is a title Jesus uses about 80 times in the New Testament about himself, I'm the Son of Man, a little over 80 times. Well, that just proves he's what? He's a human. It doesn't prove anything about his godness. So where does the title, the Son of Man, demonstrate that Jesus is referencing himself as the Son of God? Do you have it in your notes in Daniel chapter 7? Do you have in your notes Daniel chapter 7? Verses what? 13 and 14. And the scene is in heaven. And remember the scroll. And one like the Son of Man comes forth. And he takes this and he gives it to God Almighty, the Ancient of Days. You see, this one is in that scene equated with God himself. This is the one who was worshipped along with God. He is declaring himself as the one who fulfills that great prophecy of Daniel. He says, I am that one. I am that one who is the son of man. You remember in Mark chapter 2, having a teaching in somebody's house. And all of a sudden, scratch, 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 and the roof caves in, and they bring someone down to paralytic. Remember that? And Jesus says, what, your sins are forgiven. And what, what does that create among them? <gasps> Why is that so strikingly difficult for them to believe? Because they say what? Only God. You see, we can't, you have to make sure you get it. Why is saying your sins are forgiven? Why is it so big deal, Nicholas? Because they said what? Only God can forgive sins. So what does Jesus say? Oh, yeah, you're right. You know, yeah, you're right. What does he say? He says that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. In other words, you're looking at God in the flesh. You're looking at God in the flesh so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. What does he say? Take up your pallet and walk. See, he doesn't debate. He just does. He just does. Remember John 8, 58. And I'll close with this. The discussion with the Jews. Jesus is discussing Abraham and the revelation of Abraham. Abraham saw my day. What are you talking about? Abraham saw your day. You're only 50 years old, maybe. Abraham lived a long time ago. He couldn't have seen your day. You're not that old. And what does Jesus say in 858 of John? Before Abraham was, I am. <gasps> and what do they do? They try to kill him. Why? Because, you see, he has proclaimed himself not only as the Messiah. He could have probably gotten away with that by itself. But also as the Son of God or as God the Messiah. And he's claimed himself that way because the use of I am 
he was saying that I am the I am of the Old Testament having come in the flesh. Now, this is a very scanty thing this morning, what we've done. But hopefully what it does, it gives us the ability to, first of all, recognize we need to know a whole lot more than we know, all of us, including the teachers. And that we're living in a world that is regularly and increasingly going to be attacking our faith and calling it into question. And we need to be increasingly ready to defend the faith. The most primary way to defend the faith is John 13, I think it's 35. What does he say? This is the way that you, they'll know you're my disciples, that you what? Love one another. So I believe the primary method of defending the faith, first of all, is not having all the theology. First of all, are we loving the way God loves? Are we functioning in a community relationally, caring, lovingly, the way God does within himself, the three persons of the Trinity? That's the bedrock. <clears throat> because you see, out of that context of the only way, the only reality of what love is, out of that context, <clears throat> then we share historical evidence, theological evidence, etc. evidence. That's how we move forward in this. Amen? And we do it within the whole understanding that this is all the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit and not according to how well I debated and how much I knew. Amen? For the next two Sundays, we're going to be having prayer instead of a class. We normally take a couple of weeks off and have prayer. And then we'll go back to finishing the series that we've already been in. And the rest of that series of applying Christ as prophet, priest, and king as a revelation of the Trinity of God is going to be applying how is that to work out in the church and especially how is it working out in husbands and wives in marriages. I know that many of you may not be coming during the regular times of School of the Word, but let me encourage you. What God has begun in you, please continue with I'm teaching. Bill will be teaching some things in the future. Evan will be teaching. So uh, let's commit ourselves to the Holy Spirit's opportunity to give us the word. Amen. Thank you so much for being here.